Hello and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. A multi-billion dollar operation that incorporates offshore scam centers, human trafficking, fake investment websites, and cryptocurrency. Pig butchering is emerging as a serious priority for law enforcement, who are seeing victims lose their entire life savings to scammers that may in turn be victims themselves. In this episode, I'm joined by cybercrime-savvy public sector heroes Aaron West, who's Deputy District Attorney for Santa Clara County, California, and Alona Katz, Deputy Bureau Chief of the Cybercrime and Identity Theft Bureau in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, to discuss how you can protect yourself from these complex scams. Alona and Aaron are also working to enable their peers across the country through a coalition dedicated to stopping this billion-dollar industry. Please remember that the views expressed by these guests are their own and not necessarily the offices where they're employed or any entity they may represent. For more on these topics and all things crypto crime, you're in luck. The 2023 Chainalysis Crypto Crime Report is now available. See the show notes for the download link. And if you'd like to meet the team behind the report live and in person, then you need to join me in New York City on April 4th and 5th for the Chainalysis Links Conference. And get your ticket today because I'm expecting the conference to sell out soon. As always, you can find the registration details in the show notes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Public Key. On this show, as you know, we cover a wide range of topics related to cryptocurrency from policy to tech to crime. But often in the context of crime, we're talking about statistics and very abstract. So today I've got a different perspective. We're going to go directly to the practitioners. I've got two experts joining us. First from Santa Clara County, Aaron West. And then second, Alona Katz from New York City. Aaron, Alona, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. You know, I think today we're going to dive into this emerging category of investment scams related to cryptocurrency. We've seen this in the Chainalysis data. The growth has been significant over the last few years, particularly as asset prices have taken off. I think the scammers have seen this as a very lucrative source of income. And in particular, this category that's now known as pig butchering, it's a topic we've hit on the podcast before. But before we get there, I'd love to understand your backgrounds. Aaron, maybe we can we can start with you. First, I would say anyone that doesn't already follow you on LinkedIn should absolutely do that, particularly if they're interested in this topic. You're a prolific poster. But maybe take us back to your background and how you found yourself in this world of cryptocurrency and particularly the these investment scams, because I think you're now seen widely as, a, as an expert on the topic. Thank you. I'm a county prosecutor. I work for Santa Clara County. I'm a deputy district attorney, and this is my 25th year as a prosecutor for them. I've done all kinds of different work in the office. I spent nine years on sexual assault, but for the past six years, I have been the prosecutor for the REACT task force. That's a high-tech, multi-jurisdictional task force that involves a five-county area, and we specialize in high-tech cases. We kind of first became acquainted with cryptocurrency in 2018 when we worked on SIM swapping cases. And if you're not familiar, it's just basically a way of taking over someone's telephone service for the purpose of taking over 
crypto accounts. We worked those cases. We became familiar with how to trace cryptocurrency using chain analysis, initially doing it on ourselves, doing it ourselves, but ultimately using your tool. And then it became a natural fit when we noticed how big the pig butchering problem was that React should take a look at tracing those funds and figuring out how we could help victims. It's an amazing evolution. And SIM swapping, if people are not familiar, is is terrifying. As someone that depends on my phone for basically everything, the idea that someone else could basically take control of it, it actually keeps me up at night. Now, Alona, you have a fascinating background. And it looks like, from what I can tell on LinkedIn, that you've been in and around technology-related crime for some time. I'm curious about your background, how you found yourself in that area, and when did you first encounter crypto in that area? I think you have some experience in identity theft prior to maybe your current focus area. I've been working in the criminal justice fields for almost 20 years now, which is crazy. <laughs> I started off in law enforcement in an investigative role. So I first started doing white collar crimes, actually working on them from the law enforcement angle, and then was always frustrated that after an arrest was made or a case was concluded, I could never get in the courtroom and see things through to the end. So I went to law school with a very determined goal of becoming a prosecutor at the Manhattan District attorney's office. I'm a lifelong New Yorker. That's what I wanted to do. And I started off in a street crime unit. And at that time, cryptocurrency, I had never even heard of the word before. If you told me that this is what I would fall in love <laughs> with investigating years later, I would have said, what's that? And then about seven or eight years ago, I transferred to the Cybercrime and Identity Theft Bureau. And initially, a lot of my work was based in identity theft. And that led me into the world of doing a lot of search warrants on electronic devices and online accounts and cloud storage. And I think in about 2017 or so, I got my first cryptocurrency case. I was completely reliant on my analysts because my initial reaction was, oh, crypto, like I can't understand this. Like someone is going to have to tell me what to do. And at that time, it was just Bitcoin moving in a very linear progression. And we didn't have any tools on that case. We were just using, you know, the public ledger to piece it all together. And then I just discovered that I found it fascinating. It was like having to learn a whole new language, vocabulary, terminology. And I think one of the things I like doing best as a prosecutor is following the money. So this was just like following the money, but like hyped up on a next level and just trying to keep up with all the scammers who were laundering the money on the blockchain. So I've just been captivated by the subject matter ever since then. It's amazing. I mean, 2017 is early in terms of crypto terms. So I think you're right on the line of maybe qualifying as an OG in the, in the <laughs> world of crypto. Now, you know, onto our topic of pig butchering, I have to admit that I had never heard of pig butchering e even as recently as a year ago. It really wasn't on my radar. And then we had the opportunity to interview a journalist from Vice World News, Alistair McCready, who's on the ground in Southeast Asia. And he had done some fascinating reporting about the scammer infrastructure and kind of the scale, what he called industrial operation that was happening in countries like Cambodia and Laos, really just kind of tragic 
tragic, heartbreaking stories of people being tricked or conned into participating in the the scamming activity, but also the scale of money coming through the the organization. But I'm really curious on the victim experience. I think you both have you know, spent a lot of time advocating for victims, prosecuting some of these cases, working on bringing funds back. But Alona, you can start. Give us some perspective on how big an issue is this, these cryptocurrency investment scams. Who's it affecting? What have you seen in, in your jurisdiction? Yeah, I would say we we also have a hotline in our office, in my particular bureau. And I think I first started to become aware of these types of crimes by noticing a kind of trend and an uptick in the hotline calls of people from a complete diversity of background that were falling, not just for investment scams, but kind of scams that involve a very, you know, like emotional and personal connection with the scammers as well. And it it really ranged the the gamut of residents of New York City. Either people thought this opportunity would result, you know, in them being able to, you know, elevate the living standards, like, you know, for their family, like it was a chance at something like special and lucrative and that they didn't act now, that opportunity would be gone. Or it was people who might not have been interested in an investment opportunity, but the scammer happened to contact them at a particularly vulnerable time in their life, or, you know, it touched a nerve or the scammer said something that resonated with them and they got you know, drawn in. So I first started to notice it from those hotline calls. And then as I became kind of more engaged and, and plugged into the community and cryptocurrency investigations, I realized that everyone across the country was seeing these types of crimes. And I think the scary part is, is that they are vastly underreported. What gives you that instinct that they're underreported? Do you think victims are maybe a little hesitant to come forward and actually try and bring charges? Yeah, typically for these kind of scams, the reporting time, I've noticed it's at least a month or two after the scam has actually occurred. And the victims have a great deal of um, trepidation and shame and embarrassment when they come forward. And the first thing I always say to any victim is, I'm sorry this happened to you and it's not your fault. Yeah. My impression has been like in the course of trying to get help, they have maybe encountered, you know, law enforcement or people from financial institutions whose initial reactions to them have been like, you gave your money away, like you fell for this. Like, yeah. I can't believe you believe them you know, that just compounds like the shame and embarrassment that they're already feeling. You know, the, the people that we know about that are coming forward, if they're reporting that, I can only imagine the people who are so overcome with those emotions that they might not even say anything at all. My own personal experience is I started to learn more about this topic and I would describe to friends or colleagues what was going on here and the scale of the operation. The initial reaction I got from almost everybody was complete skepticism. I would never get caught in something like that. How could anyone get caught in something like that? And I said, no, like the victims of these crimes, many of them look just like us, right? They could be in our friend circle. They could be our parents. They could be our kids. Like there's no you know narrow band of demographic, firmographic, like characterization here. I think it's everybody. I mean, Aaron, I'm really curious to hear your experiences in the West Coast and the Bay Area where you might think, oh, there's more technology people out there around Santa Clara County. Like, what are you seeing? 
You know, I'm having a lot of the same experiences that Alona is having. And one of the things when I train, I talk about things that I've heard in my own backyard. And I talk about how I'm a gardener and I like to sit in my backyard. And I talk about like literally friends who have reached out to me in my backyard who have said, has sent a text saying, hey, my son got caught up in this. Can you help? Or, hey, I've been talking to this woman online and she wants to communicate on WhatsApp. Is that a safe place to communicate. And then when I ask for more information about that, I'm like, does this person live in this country? No, they live in Southeast Asia. That I think that illustrates to me that this is happening to the gamut, as Alona said, it's happening to young people, old people, millennials, super educated people in different jobs. It's happening everywhere. Yeah, it really is a terrible thing. I think that's why the three of us got together on this podcast to try and just help with some more education so people are a little more vigilant, aware that this type of activity is coming for them, unfortunately. Can I add one thing about that? Absolutely. Because I think when we talk about, and because like, I'll go to the gym and I'll talk about this thing and I get the same skeptics you do, Ian, that are like, oh, that would never happen to me. And I think what people discount is the long con nature of this, that this scammer doesn't show up and then an hour later ask you to invest. This is a person who has won the trust of these victims over a month long period, who has been there multiple times times per day, asking about that person's family, their interests, their pets, that I think that's part of the key tragedy that's happening in these cases is that our victims are creating a trusted relationship with someone. And they think that they have a special person in their life that they can trust. And when they see their friend having this enviable lifestyle, it doesn't seem completely out of left field that that friend would share knowledge about how you too could achieve that goal little by little. So I think that when people are skeptical, they might not consider the length of time invested. And if I can just follow up on what Erin said, she highlighted, you know, the length of time and like the emotional bond that grows out of it. And I think that's what also makes it particularly devastating when these scams unravel, because it's not just, oh, I lost all this money. It's, you know, I lost this person that maybe was a sense of comfort in my life and everything I confided in them and everything I I believed in them, I've been had. And I, I think that's where a lot of the embarrassment and shame comes from too. It really is amazing. I think and most people conceive this when they first hear about it as being the Nigerian prince emails that we all got in the late 90s when we first got email, a very simplistic con. And what I've come to learn is that there's actually an incredible amount of like psychological profiling that goes on, right? As we now all live online, it's actually quite easy to learn about our personal relationships and our kids and our interests and our hobbies. All of that goes into building the attack profile the scammers have developed. And so the sophistication is just at a level that I think is hard for people to believe. Aaron, I'm curious on a different note, like cryptocurrency overall, you know, it's kind of a new emerging technology. I think a lot of people have heard of it probably over the last two years because it's just been pervasive in the news. But when you think about the spectrum of, you know, different things you could focus on as a district attorney, how did you, you know, see crypto as being this big topic to focus and put a lot of effort on? Well, to me, it was where the victims were. This was an area that wasn't being widely focused upon. This was an area where there were some devastated victims. It's, you know, it started with SIM swapping and seeing people lose their entire fortune while they slept. They woke up. They had no access to their phone and their cryptocurrency accounts were empty. And to see the like level of devastation 
I think a lot of people would like to say, oh, these are white collar crimes. People are not getting physically injured. But I tell you what, these victims are suffering a devastation that's much worse than getting your arm broken in a bar fight. They've lost their entire sense of stability. And so when it came to pig butchering and victims, the level of absolute devastation and and ruin of people made it clear to me that this was an area where where some effort was required. I so agree with what Erin said. It's really nice to know we're doing like the same type of work on the, the East Coast and the West Coast and seeing the same thing. I've done a large amount of work with senior citizens and older victims of these types of crimes, and they've expressed the exact sentiment that Erin just shared, that if they had been walking down the street and someone grabbed like, you know, their purse and broke their arm, there may have been, you know, a front page thing on the newspaper paper, you know, elderly woman, you know, attack, you know, she's a victim of this. They would have had like an outcry of social support, maybe even like a GoFundMe <laughs> to help pay with their hospital bills and everything. <laughs> and that perception of them as like someone who's really been victimized, I don't see it, you know, portrayed in, you know, the media and the public in the same way. And I've heard, and not to minimize the impact of, you know, having your arm broken or, or being attacked on the street, because that's certainly extremely traumatic, but I've, I've heard the sentiment, like I could have recovered from that that easier than having my entire retirement savings account wiped out. And no one is talking about me as like, you know, a special victim because in some way I gave, you know, the money away. So I'm not eligible for like reimbursement or somehow I was like complicit in this. And I was very inspired. I'll just give credit to Kathy Stokes, who I know Erin has spoken to from the ARP. She was really instrumental in helping me rethink like the language that we talk about this. So instead of saying, you know, elderly woman gave her money away to scammer, we could say like a member of our older community was targeted by this, you know, national sophisticated organization, like using psychological like techniques that are like tested and proved effective. That's an important mindset shift. It's subtle, but it's really critical where we're not kind of blaming or shaming the people who have actually experienced the loss here. So Alana, you, you just shared on LinkedIn, big news out of New York last week, a large dark web drug distribution ring. My perception, and I'm, I'm curious for your take on this, is like crypto is actually in the middle of almost all criminal activity at this point. Like, is that a, is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. That was a great case done by our Rackets Bureau, but it really illustrates the point that I see crypto as present and evolving in the future as impacting, you know, every type of crime. Like crypto is used to purchase and sell online child pornography material. It's used to further human trafficking. It's used for the drug trade. It's used to buy ghost gun parts. And I think we as prosecutors still have a ways to go instead of thinking it as this like isolated crypto thing or I don't do crypto yeah. and seeing it as pervasive in all of our investigations. And we have to be looking for it everywhere. That's certainly my perception from the outside. So I, I love hearing you say that. Do you get pulled into every case that has a crypto angle as the expert? Or do you feel like there's now expertise is kind of proliferating with your peers? Initially, the Cybercrime and Identity Theft Bureau, where I am, was, you know, we just had one person um, working on these cases. And now we will soon be up to three dedicated crypto analysts. And we also have crypto analysts in our Rackets Bureau, in the Financial Frauds Bureau, in our Major Economics Crimes Bureau. And I know that there have been cases in the trial divisions where during the course of search warrants, people have come across, you know, crypto artifacts and have started to reach out to us. So I really, in the macro sense, see our bureau as, you know, doing our own cases, but also assisting 
boosting the whole office in their endeavors. Almost like a center of excellence for crypto related crime. Like, thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, Aaron, you mentioned in your intro the React task force. I think that deserves a little more focus because I think you've helped to create something pretty special there. Could you describe what React is and the concept behind that? It is something pretty special, and I'm really honored to be a part of it. The legislature in the late 90s in California recognized that high-tech crime was becoming something that needed more attention and needed more funding. So it established five task forces in the state of California, and it, it gave them some additional funding. REACT is Santa Clara County's task force. We have five other counties, but we're in a unique position because we have agents who come there and stay there for a bit and really develop the skills. And not only do they use it to solve their crimes, they're instrumental in teaching nationally the, the techniques that they've learned and used. And so I think it's a really great framework that I would love to see used across the country because of the partnership, not only between the agencies within our county, but we also work with federal agencies and that gives us an even bigger footprint when we need to make an arrest in Oklahoma. We can count on our Secret Service partners. So it's a great model. It's a great framework. And it's enabled us to do some really important cases. How do people from other counties in California or from some of the federal agencies, like how does that come together? Like if I listening to the podcast saying, oh, wow, I'd love to send somebody from my team to work with you in Santa Clara County for a couple months. Well, my 11 o'clock appointment is with St. Louis, who is interested in putting together something like that. I get calls a lot. Indiana reached out and said, you know, they're interested in putting something together. The thing that I'm sure Alona has seen too with cryptocurrency is you need a lot of partners. That This is not something that one investigator can do by themselves. You need private partners. You need public partners. You need local law enforcement. You need federal law enforcement. And the idea of putting together task forces, smaller task forces nationwide, I think is a great way to, to, to tackle this. And it started off as let's get local law enforcement to talk to each other. And we have a listserv. And I think that's been really helpful in trading information. And instead of everybody trying to learn this stuff independently in their own office, while they also handle a whole stack of other cases, this enables us to share information and collaborate. I think it's been really helpful. I mean, the domain is so complex, right? I'm, I'm sure you've seen this too, Alona. I'm two years into working at Chainalysis. This is all I think about all day long. It's my full-time job. And I still wake up every day feeling like I learn about things I didn't even know existed yesterday. And so I can't even imagine for both of you where you've got so, much, so many more things to worry about. Keeping on top of the domain is a big challenge. So I think that collaboration across jurisdictions, because it feels like there's a shortage of people that actually understand the topic and realize kind of the magnitude of the problem that we're dealing with here. I just want to give a shout out to Erin's Coalition because it's one of just like the best examples I've ever seen of collaboration between local law enforcement. We're usually so siloed from each other and don't know what people are doing in other states. But I think everyone in that coalition really recognized, as Erin said, that like we have to learn together and help each other. And just, you know, as an anecdotal example, like our crypto investigations rarely stay within the borders of New York State. So on multiple occasions, I've been able to identify victims 
in other states. And it was because of the coalition that I was able to connect with people like in Tennessee or Hawaii in Canada and get a sharing order to pass that information on. And they were able to get those victims help with social services or work on, you know, retrieving money from them. And before that coalition, I, I don't know, I would have just started cold calling, you know, random law enforcement offices. So I really, really appreciate the community in that coalition. That's amazing. I mean, I think you've got a commercial there, Aaron, for your, I'll take for it. your coalition. We'll, I'll take uh, it. we'll clip that part out and share it specifically. We've talked a lot about the victims. And I think many people who are familiar with these scams feel like the money's gone forever. There's no hope of recovery. I, Alona, you were saying earlier, even like there's this underreporting problem. I'm sure part of that is driven because people think there's no hope. But Aaron, you've actually shared at least a few cases I've seen where you've been able to recover some of the law funds. Can you talk about that and maybe give some guidelines on people who are unfortunately caught in one of these situations? Like, what should they do? I know there's lots of third-party recovery services out there. Like, are those safe to use? Should they contact law enforcement? Like, what's the best approach? There's a lot of questions in that question. So I'll take them as I can. I think the first thing that became clear to me was victims were reporting to what they thought they were reporting to the to the FBI and the FBI would then call them back. And so they were waiting for the FBI to call them back. We love for people to report to IC3. That's a great national database for them to put their information in. That's very helpful. But to think that the victim is going to get contacted back is pretty unlikely. And then these victims were going to their local law enforcement and their local law enforcement was maybe not being kind. What I hear over and over and over, and it's the catchphrase I hate the most is like, well, once it goes into crypto, it's gone. Because that's not true. Once it goes into crypto, now we can follow it. Now we can at least get an idea of where it is. So to talk a little bit about what React did, we had that experience in tracing cryptocurrency from our SIM swap days. So we thought, what if we took a test victim in Santa Clara County who had lost $250,000. He was a an engineer. He had met someone on a dating app and it was the standard pig butchering case. And we thought, well, let's play this record out and see what we could figure out. We saw where his money went. We could trace, you know, it, it definitely split up into a number of places, but it went to an exchange overseas, which I know a lot of law enforcement would say, well, now it's overseas and I can't get it or the feds have to get it. But again, not true. I'm a big uh, advocate of empowering our local law enforcement enforcement that you can send your legal request to that international exchange and perhaps they will honor it. And in fact, a number of them we continue to see are very interested in getting dirty money off their platform. So that's what we did. We sent a search warrant to the exchange. The exchange returned the money. And I liken it to stolen bicycles. You know, we found these stolen bicycles in a storage facility. We asked for the stolen bicycles back. And then we asked for a judge to authorize us to give the stolen bicycle back to the victim. And it's really as simple as that. And I think that for those who are new to it, there's a lot of ways to complicate this and think that it's unattainable, but you're just getting people's bikes back and it's not as difficult as you might think. That's incredible. What percentage of cases that you've gotten involved in have you been able to to make a recovery? Is it possible to put a percentage on it? What I can tell you is that we have seized over $2 million in victim funds in the past six months. We've returned a million dollars to 10 victims. But what Alona said earlier is, you know, these people are not ready to deal with reporting early and often they wait. And that's the worst thing they could do in terms of giving us an opportunity to get money back. So the sooner that they feel like they have a comfortable place to disclose something terrible that happened to them and to get in front of someone who is empathetic 
empathetic and educated about how to help, the better. So what I can say is, you know, when a month or two has passed, it makes it really difficult and really unlikely that we'll be able to recover funds. Yes, 100%. I think the time to reporting it and getting it into the right hands in law enforcement is probably the most important determining factor to whether or not we can get funds back, which is why I think we really have to incorporate education and outreach in the communities that are being hit by this the most, because even if they've never heard of the scam, when we go out you know, and do some type of outreach presentation by the DA's office, if it happens to them, hopefully they'll remember, oh, you know, well, Lona did didn't seem like she would be mean to me, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, I, I can reach out to her office or I can report this. I'm not going to get laughed at. So I really believe that we need to incorporate education and outreach and raising awareness to really combat this fully. That speed of reporting seems critical. I mean, this is something that chain analysis, we're not usually working with individual victims, but you know, some of the larger thefts or hacks that have happened on like DeFi protocols was a popular target this last year or the year before we did quite a lot of work in the ransomware case. I think the patterns once the criminal has the funds are similar, which is you're trying to move them as quickly as possible to both stay a step ahead of law enforcement, you know, obscure the source of funds, move it to an exchange where you can then convert into some other asset, often, you know, local currency, cash. But the steps along the way are often where you can reach one of these seizure points, right? And so in that first handful of hours is often the most opportune time to, to get an exchange that is looking to do the right thing, that doesn't want criminals on their platforms. So speed of reporting, I think, is probably like the number one takeaway that I, I would yeah. suggest from my experience is don't hesitate to file the claim, to get involved, to outreach to your offices. Ian, can I answer a, another question that you yeah. asked me that I think is really important is third-party tracing services. I think that that provides an opportunity for our victims to get double victimized. The truth yeah. of the matter is that the only people who have the legal authority to recover your money for you are in law enforcement. And these victims are often tricked and manipulated, fraudulently told that these third-party tracing operations can get money back for them. And I've seen some really horrible contracts. I've seen victims give a power of attorney. I've seen all kinds of misleading financial agreements that are brought to victims when they are at their most desperate and they just need help. And it, oftentimes they're feeling like law enforcement has let them down. So I can understand how they get there. I just would really caution victims paying anybody to do that kind of work for them. That's super important advice. That's why I asked the question is we've seen, you know, similar issues where organizations that are not operating with the victim's best interests at heart and are profiteering or worse in when people are, are in a really tough situation. One of the things that I'm struck by in this world of crypto is how global the entire ecosystem is, right? Not just on the criminal side, but the organizations that aren't really domiciled in one country that operate kind of everywhere all at once. The market never closes, you know, assets are traded 24 by seven. And then particularly in some of these criminal activities, like the operators behind this are in a country sort of out of the reach, it seems like of traditional law enforcement. Alistair McCready was told me all about these operations in, in Laos and Cambodia and, you know, the operating sort of with complicit or at least not intervention by the, the local governments in those countries. Like Alona, you're, I think there's some history of international cooperation 
uh, and indictments of people that are seemingly outside the local jurisdiction? Like, what's the strategy here, I guess, to solve that international challenge, cross-border crime? As a local prosecutor, we really had to assess our resources and our capability as as a local New York prosecutor's office. And how much resources and time are we going to put into investigating someone who's in a country that may not even have an extradition treaty in the U.S.? And we've kind of taken the approach to a lot of these cases. Our first immediate step is always, can we get money back from the victim for the victims asset recovery that's the first thing we always focus on and then part and parcel to that we'll also do some exploratory investigations to try and you know suss out what the country of origin is and there've absolutely been times where the you know the operator behind the scam or the target is in a country that does have a friendly relationship with law enforcement in the US and i know that they'll work with us and in those cases we would perhaps be able to actually pursue an indictment or an arrest or rely on some help from our our federal law enforcement partners too. But there have definitely been times where just as a local prosecutor, you realize like I can't take down, you know, like a call center across the world where I have like, you know, no jurisdictional reach and no like, you know, satellite office. So in those cases, we just, we really focus on doing what we can for the victims. And we still always encourage them, as Erin said, to report to IC three, because that's being reviewed by our federal partners. And, you know, I know there are times when they've put together cases on IC3 and connected the dots and have been able to build larger investigations and and work with foreign governments. So every case, it's a case by case triage and assessment. Definitely a challenging problem. Erin, you're kind of in the heart of Silicon Valley in Santa Clara County, right? In between the uh, tech giants. I'm curious how you think about collaborating with them. Like, were it not for the internet, we wouldn't have to worry about cryptocurrency. I have to say there seems to be an interesting difference in the amount of collaboration that happens between those of us in the crypto space, which I think is super high and people seem very interested in meeting and collaborating and some of our other tech partners in Silicon Valley that I think that there's work that can be done. I think that there's more relationship building that can happen. When I think about pig butchering, I think about what are the on-ramps? How are these scammers getting access to these victims? And I started to keep my own data on it because I was curious. I mean, it's pretty consistently a few major players. And it's LinkedIn, it's Match, it's Meta. And I think that I would love to see cooperation and collaboration with those companies in terms of what can we really do to get these scammers off their platforms? Because if you stop giving them access to victims, at some point, the random text program is going to dry up and people are going to get wind of that and that's going to stop working. So I would love to see some cooperation and collaboration. Not an easy solution by any means, but something that would be beneficial to everybody involved to try and work on. As we kind of come to the conclusion here, like really for people listening to this and then for their extended networks as they share this story, how should people think about protecting themselves? Like what's what's the best advice, Alona, that you would give to keep people from falling falling victim to these types of scams? You reminded me of a, an anecdote that a close friend shared with me recently where she's being audited by the IRS. <laughs> 
very minor issue, but okay. she and her husband and her family were in the process of going back and forth with the IRS sorting it out. A lot of scammers as their kind of like intro or, you know, their hook will use something that, you know, affects almost all of us. So like I'm calling about your order on Amazon or, you know, there's a UPS shipment. In this case, she happened to get a call from a scammer who is like, I'm calling about your ongoing issue with the IRS. And, you know, right story, wrong time. That's that's all it takes, you know, for someone to fall for something. So she immediately was like, oh, I thought we provided the information. Can you verify this, this, this and that? And he started to get more threatening. And she lives in New York City. So at that moment, a police car with a siren happened to go by. And the scammer on the phone heard it and said, you see that? That's the police that we're sending to your house because you owe so much money to the IRS. Luckily, you know, something clicked and she was able to realize this was a scam and hung up before went further. But, you know, for those 20 minutes, like she was enthralled by the story. She was totally buying it. And I've heard from other victims where, um, you know, they've gotten calls that someone is a social security administration investigator and they're calling about a social security number being used. And they just happened to be calling shortly after, you know, the death of their husband. And so that call about the social security number got compounded with, you know, the death certificates and everything that they have to file. So anyone can feel like, oh, I'm on guard, I can suss out the scam. But if they catch you with, you know, the right story at the wrong time, you can really be among one of the vulnerable. And I try to advise, especially, you know, members of the, the older and aging community in New York, even if you just have like a funny feeling or if something's wrong, think about what you had done prior to this call and interactions with the scammer to verify that, you know, your banking transaction was accurate or something was legitimate. Like you called the number that was on the bank of your card. You went to your local branch. A lot of people have, you know, like a teller or someone that they've known from years, or I say to them, have someone in their, your family or friend, that's just like your financial safety check. So you can just run the financial transaction. But, you know, if you can almost kind of just like break the spell of the scammer for a second and do what you would normally have done in your financial transactions. Like if they're showing you your bank statement online and you've never done online banking anymore, go to your bank and get like a printout of your statement, go back to the old fashioned method. So I think there are very easily and accessible ways to detect a scam that don't involve you having to trace a phone number or reverse search an IP that, you know, we can put in people's grasp and bring to their attention, which is why I'm so passionate about, you know, doing things like this, you know, and, and doing education and outreach to the community. And even if it's not you, I guarantee you there's someone you know, or someone in your family or friends who has fallen for something. So even if you're just talking about it, not for yourself, but just to raise awareness among your loved ones, that's a great thing to do. Absolutely. I love the one about, you know, find a trustworthy friend who you can do a second level verification with. Just before we jumped on this recording, my wife texted me a screenshot. She'd gotten an email, you know, it was, clear, it was clearly a scam email to me, but it was convincing enough that she wanted a second opinion before she deleted it and ignored the, the email. Just that simple act versus clicking on a link and kind of like exploring further and opening herself up to the scam. I was so happy that she emailed me. My mother yeah. is so well trained. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Doesn't click on anything without sending it to me first. I'm so yeah. proud of her. We all need, everyone listening needs to go find their <laughs> second level verifier that they can trust <laughs> to check. Aaron, how about you as we close up the episode, final advice for our listeners out there? 
Well, I'm a big talker and I'm a big concept person of like, whenever you have an opportunity to talk to someone, whenever there's a lull in the conversation, throw out, have you heard of pig butchering? Have you heard about this? Have you heard about the grandparent scam? Did you hear what happened in San Jose when somebody called and said that they were this person's kid and they'd been in a DUI and there are a million scams out there. And, you know, sextortion is a big one that's happening in Santa Clara County and we're super aware of it. And I have teenage boys and I am sure I embarrassed them to tears when I'm driving them all somewhere. And I'm like, Hey, can I get a verbal confirmation from everyone that we're not going to send any dick pics with our faces in it? Teenage boys are like, Oh my God, mom. <laughs> but, the, but the point is you've got to normalize this stuff and you've got to normalize, like you don't need to go to a Bitcoin ATM. If anyone ever wants to send you to a Bitcoin ATM, if anyone ever asks you to send gift cards, you know, there's just a million scams and these people spend all day, all night figuring out new ways to trick us. And we've got to keep talking and stay on top of what's going on. My my boys are a little bit younger than yours, Erin, so <laughs> I now know what I have to look forward to. I didn't know about that question, but I, mm -hmm. I'm going to add it to my repertoire. Throw it in, they'll <laughs> love it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this. Such an important topic. And thank you for all the work that you're doing out there to help people. I sincerely appreciate it. Alona, Erin, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and our newly launched TikTok, where we share our favorite moments captured in this podcast and other great content from the Chainalysis team. And if you're into crypto policy and financial compliance, I bet you'll enjoy our new YouTube show, Know Your Crypto Compliance, hosted by my colleagues and friends, Clark Flint Barr and Caitlin Barnett. It turns out, if you're listening to this episode, there's a pretty good chance you're from Australia. According to our download statistics, Australia is a top five country where public key listeners are tuning in from. So to close out this week's show, I invited my Aussie colleague, Mike Mizells to share why he loves the podcast. Mike, take us out. So the thing I love about public key is that when I drive my kids to school on a Wednesday morning, they know it's public key time. They, they know, they know the new podcast is out. They know they're going to have to listen to crypto on the way to school. Just being able to hear things that I just couldn't consume from reading as many blog articles in one place, you know, just to educate myself about what's happening, what other people's viewpoints are, being able to, you know, socially network with key individuals in this space without having to meet them and just to talk to them over a coffee and to understand what they're doing and what they're seeing in the marketplace. And from where I am in Australia, just to be able to educate myself that I can take this and use this down in the ecosystem where I am here to enrich people people's lives with that information and to educate them as well. And I just think it's a massive education piece for us in the web free world. Everyone is exciting. Everyone is spot on in terms of the information that you can achieve from it. And being able to stay connected to what everyone else is doing in Europe and North America and other parts of the world is super useful. And I, you know, I thoroughly enjoy waking up on a Wednesday and being able to consume that podcast.